Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to another episode of Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Cal Ross, and today I'm really excited to be introducing you to Nick MacArthur, who is a branding and marketing expert based out of Canada. In this episode, we talk about the it factor and why is it important. Why do people love to buy stuff from people they connect with? And most importantly, how do you find your secret sauce? Nick has had this incredible experience of living fully on both sides of the gender spectrum and brings a unique perspective to the world of business, marriage, and social dynamics. Some of the topics that Nick specializes in is how gender affects the way we communicate, things women say that hold them back, and how to brand like a boss, combining your heart and hustle into your brain. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Nick MacArthur. Good afternoon, uh, Nick. Uh, Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with how we got introduced uh, through our mutual friend, Blair. And uh, after she referred uh, your profile to me, and then, uh, you know, I looked at your website and saw what an intriguing background you have. And I know having you on the show and uh, having you share your insights would be a treat for my audience. So again, thank you for taking the time to be on the program. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great, Nick. Uh, one of the ways uh, we kick off our show is by asking our guest a simple yet profound question, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Well, I would say currently, it's, I think it changes all the time, but right now, uh, my kids and I read the book Wonder, and the uh, precept of when given the opportunity to choose being right or being kind, choose being kind. And so that's that's our family motto right now at the moment. I like that. Kindness is definitely something that uh, you know we all need to uh, you know have uh, experience in our life as well as uh, you know be uh, one of our universal principles. Uh, so mm-hmm. well, that is so great. So the other question I have for you is, Nick, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? In uh, other words, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Uh, so I grew up um, in Ontario, just outside of Toronto, in a town called Oshawa, which is known as being a like the only thing that was there at the time that I grew up was a GM town, like General Motors factory. Uh, and my parents were divorced, and my mom was a cab driver, and my dad worked um, as a he worked in a bindery. He runs heavy equipment. Still to this day, he does the same thing. Uh, I think that I learned what it was like um, to work really hard, I think, from my dad. And I grew up mostly just with with my mom, um, pretty poor. And my dad and his, he got remarried and they had like the nice house and the nice area of town. And we had like the crappy house and the crappy area of town. And uh, so I... But, like, he worked really hard for his money, and my mom was one of those people that, like, worked as little as humanly possible. And so I sort of 
saw that like the harder you work, the nicer your life can be. No, that is so great. It seems like, uh, you know, you have a pretty solid foundation. It seems like that uh, you got from your parents in terms of kindness and uh, working hard. And that's that's such a great work ethic to have in today's day and age. Uh, one of the things that I definitely want to get into is your expertise that uh, you help uh business leaders and entrepreneurs to really distinguish themselves in this crowded marketplace with their branding and marketing and really they're finding out what their it factor is all about. And we'll get into that as we go along. But what I'm really uh, curious about, and this is what we normally get all the questions from our audience in terms of like, you know, how do you find your calling? How do you find your purpose? And it seems like you have distinguished for yourself uh, a pathway, if you will, that uh, speaks to you, that you're able to help out. Uh, so how did this journey began for you? Did you always know that branding and marketing was uh, your uh, calling? No, not at all. Um, the path to this was a pretty messy one for me, if I'm being honest. Um, I, at 19, got married um, and did the like wife thing because I was it's complicated uh so at 19 I was I worked for Chuck E. Cheese I was a new unit opener uh so I traveled across North America opening Chuck E. Cheese's for a fair amount of years so I you know I'd fly into a place open the Chuck E. I was like part of the new unit opening team we'd train 200 staff fire half of them make sure that everything was sort of set up and running open the location, stick around for a couple weeks and then like jet off to the next location. And I did that. So I'd be gone for a month to six weeks at a time and then home for a few weeks and then head off to the next location. Um, and did that at that time I was a woman. I grew up, um, assigned female at birth. So I'm a transgender man at this point now. Um, and I married a nice guy. He was a pastor at a church. Um, we did the we both left the church shortly after we got married um and i worked doing the chuck e cheese thing um then i took a job out in vancouver working um running the training department for uh, a company called cobb's bread um and then you know quickly from there he got a job in calgary so we moved to calgary um and i left that and went back to chuck e cheese actually as a a general manager, um, and op- I opened the, there was a new location that was getting ready to open in Calgary. So I opened that, became the general manager of that store. Um, and then from there decided that we were going to have kids. So I moved down to managing a few Starbucks because that was less, believe it or not, Chuck E. Cheese is actually like a for real gig. Like I made over a hundred K a year at that job as a general manager who knew at the time that it was like, a gold mine. It's not like that anymore, apparently. But uh, and so I, I like scaled down because running a Chuck E. Cheese was like a sixty-hour-a-week job, but running a Starbucks was like a thirty-five-hour-a-week job in my sleep, sort of thing. Um, and then had kids and was a stay-at-home mom, um, and slowly lost my soul because um, being a stay-at-home mom on its own was really not my thing. I needed some sort of identity. Uh, so then I started a photography business. Um, learned how to become a photographer was like 
above mediocre. Uh, but I really loved the business side of it. I realized, like, I had missed the business of, like, the thrill and the chase of, like, getting the sale and, like, not just getting the sale, but, like, getting the biggest sale possible. Um, and all of my years working restaurant had, I, I hadn't realized it, but they had taught me how to read people in a way that I don't think I could have learned anywhere else. Um, and so, I did really well at photography, not because I was a good photographer, but because I was really good at business. And I realized that like, oh, like I love the thrill of the chase in getting the client and like taking good photos that they're happy with, but then like enjoying the like the the glory of the sale at the end. Um, and so I, I was like, oh, I probably don't need to be a photographer to have that part of things. So slowly I started mentoring other photographers who frankly were much better photographers than I was on how to actually make money as a photographer and then realized that like, Oh, that transfers over to like, then I had a life coach ask me how to do it. And then I had, you know, it sort of just kind of snowballed out of there where I was sort of mentoring and coaching people that I had no idea about how their business like, I don't know anything about being a life coach or how to be a realtor or any of those things, but all the marketing parts of it were the same. Um, and so it just sort of snowballed. My best friend and I then started a web design company called Give Me That It. And she did all of the design side of it. And I did the whole managing the client, um, like brand strategy, marketing strategy, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and she just got to be like the nerdy, but so happy designer who didn't have to deal with the people. And I got to do all of the dealing with the people, but didn't have to actually do any of the work, which was basically the best gig ever. Um, and then we sort of, I got divorced from my husband, realized that I was gay, married a woman, uh, therefore needed to support myself in a different way than my business partner did because it was sort of like this really great hobby that we could make 60 grand a year each at, which was a really cool gig. Um, and then, but 60 grand a year doesn't cut it for supporting five kids and a wife. So, um, we sort of went our separate ways. We still work together a ton, but we run our own businesses now. Um, and then shortly after that, I, it sort of came to the realization that like, Oh, I wasn't actually a gay woman. I was a man stuck in a woman's body. So I transitioned to male, um, and run Epic danger as basically the, the same kind of concept as I did with give me that it only it's just, I'm the whole part of the business now and I don't do the actual branding myself part of it. I do the like idea part and often I will, um, basically contract out all the, like I'll help someone work with a designer and find the right person for them and do all of those sorts of things. Cause I know how to manage that side of things for them. Um, but mostly I just do the big idea part of it. Wow. No, this is uh, fascinating. And uh, as you can tell, I have a lot of questions uh, regarding that. And so let me just recap. So it seems like that's uh, a big dump, right? That's <laughs> like a lot of information all at once. No, but it is, it is definitely intriguing. And so just to kind of like recap our conversation here. So it started off with, uh, with your uh, experience uh, with, uh, 
the Chuck E. Cheese uh, restaurant business and then constant traveling. And then uh, that led to, uh, you know, you're realizing at some point that you enjoyed the thrill of the chase, the sale at the end of a uh, customer, the big sale. And then you incorporated that into your photography business. And then that kind of like uh, helped you uh, navigate uh, into, you know, uh, helping other entrepreneurs and life coaches and that kind of a thing. And then you essentially started a web design company, uh, helping people find their it factor. And then uh, eventually uh, that led to uh, Epic Danger, which is really uh, marketing and branding consulting, and you're doing it full time. So is that is that like a good uh, thread of your business so far or your career graph? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then as far as your personal life is concerned, I mean, this is fascinating as well. I mean, it started off uh, getting married to a pastor and then at uh, one point realizing that you're gay and then having a divorce and then marrying a woman and then really, uh, you know, having this uh, uh, realization that uh, you were a man trapped in a woman's body. And so that transition happened. And now, like, uh, you know, uh, you are uh, really... uh, uh, now a trance, uh, and that's really what your identity is at this point. Uh, is that is that a fair summary? That is a fair summary. Okay, great, excellent. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> no, that is. It's that a is, lot. I know. No, it is. It is really fascinating, and I have uh, you know a couple of questions that I want to ask you. And one is, and this is one of your keynote topics that you talk about. And let's start with that. And one of the things that I'm curious about is. Having gone through this transition from uh, being a woman to realizing you're gay and now being a trans, what have you learned about, you know, gender communication in terms of uh, how gender affects the way we communicate? Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that I I didn't identify as a feminist when I was a woman. Um, I identified as like, oh, feminists are just blowing everything out of proportion and like life's not that bad. And I do think that like part of that comes from being Canadian. I mean, Justin Trudeau is our prime minister who's dedicated to making sure that 50% of his cabinet is female. So I, I do believe that being Canadian, we actually experience less, um, less of the like patriarchy, I think for lack of a better word than, than people in other places do. Um, and so I, I think that I was a little bit naive because I was Canadian or I am Canadian, but I think, um, that I just sort of was like, well, I mean, like, I don't think I've missed out on any jobs because I'm a woman and I don't, I know like, I don't get sexually harassed everywhere I go. And the truth is, is like, I've been touched more inappropriate as a, more inappropriately as a man than I have as a woman. But I will say that, I, I think that I was not your typical woman. I had a lot of masculinity in me and whatnot. Um, anyway, but all of that to say that I don't think that I really, I don't, I didn't realize how bad it was until I realized what it was like to be treated as a cis white man. And so now that like, now that I, I pass as male, no one would ever guess that I'm transgender unless I chose to tell them. Um, I have a, a nice wife and the kids and the whole, like I have the whole like happy suburban life with the dog and the whole thing. Um, and I didn't realize how poorly women are treated until I was treated differently and better as a male. And so I think that that allows me to really understand women and, and like, um, 
and the way that they communicate and the way that they feel slighted in a way that most other people can't because I, I, I'm able to say you're not crazy. Um, this life is harder for you because you're a woman, even in a nice, happy Canada. Um, but I also can look at it and I can go, yeah, but life as a man is, it has got a lot of privilege, but it's not quite as simple as women think it is either. So I can sort of see both sides of, of things and I can understand how, um, like I've, I've done a lot of research into the science of the fact that like on average women say 20,000 words a day and on average men say 7,000 words a day. And so all of those places where there's like that uncomfortable silence that women like in a negotiation where they go to fill it, it's actually like they don't need to fill it. It's just that the man isn't saying anything. So there's all these times where like women are sort of shooting themselves in the foot and negotiating and in business meetings and in all sorts of things because they're like, Oh God, there's a silence. I should fill it. I'll, they're probably thinking terrible things about me. That's why they're not saying anything back as quickly as I would like them to where the truth is, is that like, it's, it's just, it's actually like a biological thing that there's a, a protein in the brain that women have a ton more of that actually make them have more vocabulary. This is like sweeping generalizations, but typically more, they have a, they have more words to say based just on this like protein in the, in the brain. And there's all these studies that show that dogs and rats actually gendered have it the opposite way that the male dogs and rats have more of that protein in their brain. And if they've done all these studies where, um, male rats and dogs are way more vocal than the females. And it's just about this like biological thing that, that we have in our brains. And so it's allowed me to like, look at all the different ways that we're communicating all the different things where men and women are sort of missing each other and thinking that it's malicious and realizing that it's just our makeup. Now that is uh, really uh, fascinating. And, <clears throat> and, and you're absolutely right in terms of like silence, silence is uncomfortable for most people, regardless of gender. And there is this natural inclination uh, to fill in the conversation if there is a lull. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that's a great observation on your part that sometimes, uh, you know, just, just being comfortable with silence can be a powerful communication modality. And I totally agree with that. Uh, moving on to, uh, the branding and marketing aspect of it, it seems like a couple of things I've noticed from your share here. One is that, you were very acutely observant in terms of noticing what you enjoyed doing the most, regardless of the job that you had, be it the restaurant Chuck E. Cheese business or the brief stint with Starbucks uh, or even the photography business is like knowing, you know, it's the thrill of the chase. It's like making that big sale was something was one of your strengths that you really enjoyed doing. And secondly, uh, the fact that you were able to identify the it factor, you know, what is it that helps people stand out, if you will, or businesses stand out? And it's something that, you know, very few people realize it, or even if they do realize it, they don't take action towards it. 
but it seems like you've done that for yourself and you've uh, you really created a business around it that's really uh, successful and uh, people speak highly of uh, your strengths and skills and your expertise. So my question to you is, how can people who are listening to this and they're looking at knowing what their strengths are or trying to find out, you know, how do I capitalize on their, on my strengths or what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, one of the things I always say is that, um, that everyone has friends, right? So even if you only have three good friends in your life, like you could, some people have thousands of friends or hundreds of friends, but like everyone has someone that likes them, whether it's their mom or their partner or their best friend. Uh, so that means that like there are more people like that person out there that will like you too. So a lot of the time people will say, well, sure that works for you because you're charismatic and you have swagger and you're confident and like so cool. People like you. That's so great. But the truth is, is like everybody has someone that likes them. So it stands to reason that there are more people out there that would like those same things if they got to know those same things too. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. And I think getting that feedback uh, from your close friends can certainly uh, provide some insights into that. Uh, the other question I have for you is, uh, when you look back at your life, Nick, up until this point, you know, we've all had those moments, those strategic inflection points when, you know, our life just took off to a whole nother level in terms of success, right? It's like, mm. you know, we are kind of like going at a certain uh, level and then suddenly there's this breakthrough moment and then you're like totally operating in a different plane, if you will. So when you look back at your life, was there a moment, a turning point in your life when life was never the same again moment for you? I'm one of those people that like once I decide something, then everything sort of changes. I'm like, I deny that it's happening. I deny that it's happening. I deny that it's happening. And then I just decide like, oh, okay, that's happening now. So I would say that most of my life moments are like, oh, nothing. There's no going back from that. But um, I think a lot of it is just like finding that thing that makes you happy. And and when I look at some of the people that are living like their truest, happiest, most fulfilled life, I realize that like, oh, they've all gone through a really sad, dark time. And so, or like an unhappy time. And if you, when you're in that unhappy time, it's easier to see that like beacon of like, oh, this thing really does light my soul on fire. Um, for me personally, I think you said that I had the ability to like sort of pay attention to what made, what like was exciting to me. And I think that part of it was that like, even though I had this, what looked like really amazing life I had, my husband was a really good guy, still is, we're friends. Um, my kids are amazing, but I was fundamentally unhappy because I wasn't being my true self because I was so fundamentally unhappy. It let me really hold on to the things that made me incredibly happy, which were, it was like the thrill of the chase and, and the, the business side of things. And so when you're, when life feels really unhappy and really dark in this one spot, it's really easy to see like what what if life was happy all over would just seem this like little sliver of light. But when life feels like a dark tunnel, that sliver of light is everything and it's easier to see it and move towards it. Does that make sense? It certainly does. And, uh, you know, the couple of things that sticks out from what you just said, one is that for you personally, uh, in addition to being observant and noticing uh, your strengths, you know, you also have this, uh, 
ability to kind of like speak your reality into existence. And what I mean by that is making a commitment or burning down all the bridges and like saying, okay, this is it and uh, no more looking back. So that is one thing that I'm kind of like hearing. Is that, is that a fair? Uh, it is. It's a really messy way of doing things. I don't know that I would suggest to everyone that they should do life that way. Um, and I, I'm always like a plan B kind of guy. So I like to have like the next, I can always see what the next thing is, but I typically won't burn down this bridge that I'm on until like I've fully built the next one. So it sounds sort of, I don't want to give the, the like idea that like you should just jump from bridge to bridge without like making sure all the boards are in place. Cause that is, I feel like, well, that's a responsible message to give. But, um, so I'm always sort of like moving towards the next thing and I get bored really easily. So I don't know that I stick with anything for like longer than three or four years. And then, which I guess is a long time to some people, but not a lifetime to others. Um, but like, I don't, so I'm sort of like, even in what I'm doing right now, I'm already sort of planning the next thing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think it's uh, the constant process of evolution uh, to be the best version of ourselves. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's uh, great. The other question, and we've had many guests on the show, and one of the things that we've noticed is, uh, you know, they've all had setbacks, and the ch- and the interesting aspect of it is when when you look at it from outside, it may look like a failure, it may look like a setback, but these remarkable individuals, you know, who are extremely successful, use that as a launching pad for even greater successes. So my question to you is, when you look back at your life up until this point can you recall like uh, any situation or what what were one or two biggest challenges that you faced in your life and importantly how did you overcome it and what lessons have you learned from it that helped you navigate life going forward i mean i think that i learned from like being assigned the wrong gender at birth on a pretty regular basis i think that i like that feels very much like, I mean, it's not like I actively failed at something, but it feels really like a, like a horrible injustice to me personally. Um, but it gives me this ability to look at the world in a way that most people don't have. It gives me the ability to see and understand people in a way that most people don't have. Um, and it's one of like, it's given me one of my superpowers, so to speak, even though I wish it hadn't. Um, so I think there's that. I think that um, there's probably like a dozen businesses that I've thought about starting or like been in the process of starting that I like that I've called experiments that I've pulled the plug on because I'm like, oh, actually, I don't want to do that or that like that sounded good at the time, but I don't really want to do it or like that's a terrible idea. It's never going to like I almost started a a pajama company with my best friend because like she could design the graphics that went on the pajamas and I could sell anything and like, but then we realized that like we don't actually give a shit about, you know, sewing pajamas. So, uh, that didn't happen, but we had like a whole website and a brand and like we sourced fabric and did the whole thing and like pulled the plug at the very last second. Um, I I think that like my photography career I probably could have made it work more. I just moved on. I I just quit things before they fail I think is the big issue. Is that like I'm like oh this isn't working instead of deciding that I'm going to go down with the ship I'm just going to find what I can take from this and move it on to the next thing. Does that make sense? I don't 
I don't really look at it as failing at anything. I just quit things when they're not working or fun anymore. No, that's uh, that's a that's a great way to look at it. And for me personally too, it's uh, f- you know there is no concept like failure. For me, it's all feedback. And you know what is failure anyway? Because it's uh, you know it's a timeline that you give yourself to say, okay, you know from point A to point B, if you haven't achieved an outcome. You know, is that failure or maybe you could have learned something from the process and mm-hmm. and exactly. And I think uh, in every situation for me, the way I've done a paradigm shift or rewired my brain is any end day where I never fail because I always gain in terms of new skills, new yeah. relationships, new experiences. And of course, the bonus is if I reach the outcome, that's that's great. If not, I'll use all that for the next end day or next project. So. For me, it's uh, it's always constant feedback to be uh, the best version of myself. Now, that's great. Uh, one of the things uh, <clears throat> I'm also curious about, Nick, is uh, growing up in Canada, growing up, uh, you know, in terms of like the uh, restaurant business as well as the photography creative and really the branding and marketing business, what, what, who were your mentors in terms of growing up or whom whom did you look up to or wanted to emulate any anybody that comes to mind that you want to give a shout out to uh i mean i i've had a ton of different mentors i'm like a big fan of like you can't possibly see yourself objectively and so you should always hire someone else to help you do that um i worked in the like the end of my i think the, the person i work with that sort of helped me switch from photography to what I'm doing now, uh, Kristen Kelp of the Brain Camp blog, which now she's just kristenkelp.com and she does like breath work and stuff, but she used to be a business coach. She sort of pivoted her stuff too. Um, and now we're like good friends, but she was probably the mentor that I had that, that sort of cracked me open the most. Mm, that's great. Um, any uh, favorite hobbies and interests? Uh, are you a big, uh, Hockey fan and being in Canada? <laughs> no, I don't. Even, I don't even know how to skate. I'm a terrible Canadian. I uh, I boulder pretty. Like I probably go bouldering, like rock climbing, but without the ropes. Um, like three times a week, typically. Mm. That's my go-to. Nice. Uh, and you said you travel quite a bit as part of your restaurant business. Any favorite place to travel with your family, or is there any particular favorite spots that you like to go to? We love Portland. Uh, my wife is moved from there to I, I married an American uh, brought her over to the good side here <laughs> Canada um, and so we go back to Portland a lot I really love Costa Rica I think it's a really great place um, I mean most of my Chuck E. Cheese travels were like I don't know Holland Michigan and like not that there's anything wrong they have a lot of really lovely tulips but it wasn't like a super exciting like Chuck E. Cheese's pop up in the suburbs it's not like a there wasn't any super amazing fun travels with that, but yeah, no, you mentioned Costa Rica. It's one of my favorite places to go there. I was actually at Nosara, so good. yeah, Nosara, not too long ago, and uh, the blue zone and the blue spirit lifestyle. It just mm. is something that I'm really, really uh, passionate about. So here's a fun question for you. Now, when you look at your life up until this point, what would you say is your definition? of a successful life or a fulfilled life or a good life. What's your take on that? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I think being able to wake up in the morning and being excited more often than dreading. Mm. That is a good life. I like that. That's that's awesome. 
And uh, and here's a hypothetical situation. Let's say, Nick, if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, right, your young 18 or 19-year-old self, what advice would you give, uh, give him? I would tell him to stop giving a shit about anyone else around him and just do what makes him happy. I like that. Just live life on your own terms and uh, whatever mm-hmm. makes you happy. Great. Awesome. And we're going to switch gears here and we're going to get into the next section. And this is some of the questions we've uh, received from our audience. And I want to focus on uh, some of the branding and marketing and strategies and that kind of uh, topics. But uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is you talk about the it factor and you've helped entrepreneurs and businesses really discover what their what their it factor is mm-hmm. and why is it important. So could you kind of like give us a summary of what the it factor is all about and why is it so important? Yeah. So the it factor in like a really short, easy explanation is the reason they're buying from someone else instead of you. Or the reason why they're buying from you instead of someone else. So the idea is that like, if I look at photographers, that's where I started. The average consumer cannot tell the difference between good and great or between, they, they can tell between bad and great, but they can't differentiate the like subtleties between even bad and good or good and great. And so often people feel like they're competing based on their photographs. Well, no one gives a shit. That's just, it's, they don't care. What they care about is, can you consistently, can I imagine that you could consistently create this image from my family or my, me and my partner, if you're getting married or whatever it is, like whatever kind of photography you're looking for, do I believe that I could look good in that photo? And do I like you, know you and trust you? Can I, do I feel connected to you in some way that makes me say, yeah, I want that guy instead of this guy. Most sales come down to, yeah, I want that guy instead of this guy. And we get so caught up on the idea that it's our art or that it's our work or that it's whatever it is. No one cares about that. There's a hundred other people that do just exactly the same thing that you do for the same price or less. And they might even do it better. We're not competing on that anymore. When life was confined to like you had this small town and like two people made horseshoes in the town and one of them was better, but they were more expensive and one of them was not quite as good, but they were affordable, then you were comparing on quality. But now the world has opened up and the internet has given us endless possibilities of everything. And so you're no longer competing on the quality of your work to a certain extent. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've been reading this uh, awesome book on marketing lately, and it's the 21 Laws of Marketing. And one of the statements in that book stood out for me, which is, uh, you know, marketing is a game of mental warfare, and it is really a battle of perceptions. You know, the consumer doesn't really, uh, you know, care much about you know how great the product is or how great the service is really i mean of course they do to an extent but really it's the perception they have about your brand it's the perception that they have your have about your product or service that really is a game changer and it seems like you're kind of like uh alluding to that aspect uh, quite a bit here it's uh, the it factor now mm-hmm. why is it that people have a hard time trying to identify what the rate factor is or what they don't even focus on the rate factor. Why do you think that is the case? 
I think part of it is that you can't possibly see your own it factor. So you, you, I, I personally believe that you require someone outside of you, whether that's someone like me who specializes in this or whether it's like a life coach or a mentor or a best friend who says like, dude, this is what's so interesting about you. I, I truly believe that like you can't possibly see it for yourself because we have all these stories about ourselves, right? Um, so that like my, one of my it factors, I, I kind of float between two. One of them is that like people just, I think that I'm interesting and that they want to be my friend. That's it factor number one. It factor number two is, is my, is like, I'm innovative. I do something different every time I think outside of the box. So my stories in my own head about that is like the number one is that like, Oh, I'm just so cocky thinking I'm so great. I'm, I'm like such a narcissist. If I brand myself on just being a cool guy, uh, the story about number two, which is like, I'm, I, it's that I'm innovative and think out of the box and I don't do the same thing twice is like, I have all these stupid harebrained ideas that can't possibly work. Right. If I only listen to my own stories in my own head, I'm never going to come across those it factors as, as these are the things I should put my business on. I'm going to think they're like my flaws or my weaknesses. I should focus on my great customer service, my, you know, pedigree. Like for me personally, I don't actually have a, any fancy pedigree or secondary, like post-secondary education. But like, there's so many people that I, that I talk to that's like, oh, well, I went to Stanford, so I should focus on that. You're, now that you're like outside of the world of school, no one gives a crap about where you went to school anymore. Unless you're like a lawyer or like, a fancy surgeon, you know, no one really cares. They care about like, do you get me? Do you understand me? Can you figure out what it is that I need because you get me? Right. Mm -hmm. And so people are so caught on like, well, I'll get another credential. I'll get more education. I'll take even better of a photo. I'll, I'll, I don't like create this amazing app that will give them so much more value. Well, they don't care about that. What they care about is, do you get me? No, that's a great, great summary and a great point there. Do you get me? And I think we're going to uh, title the conversation of this podcast as do you get me? I think I like that because it's really very yeah. catching. And, uh, and, and, and absolutely uh, something that just occurred to me is, you know, for, it's it's really about it doesn't matter what kind of business you're in and it doesn't matter how saturated the marketplace is, but it's really uh, if a customer looks at you as somebody who is able to articulate their problems better than they can and offer mm-hmm. a solution, it's like it's a really uh, a process where they they really understand that, yes, this person gets me and and, you know, taking it a step further. What it also means is that in their mind, you suddenly become this uh, authority figure and an expert, which is uh, able to solve their problems. Yeah. Isn't isn't that something that uh, you've uh, noticed in your experience as well? It's true. And when I help people create a website, the first thing I do is I say, okay, what is your client's problem? What is their external problem? What is their internal problem? What is their philosophical problem? Those are the big questions I ask. And then I ask them, well, why are you suited to fix that problem? What what gives you the authority to be their guide in fixing that problem? And if you can figure out those two things and you can articulate it in two sentences, you've got a gold mine. That's fantastic. Now, 
Taking it a step back here, looking at somebody who might be looking at starting a business and is struggling with understanding who their clients are, customers are, what advice would you have for them in order to identify who their ideal client is? Because oftentimes, you know, people who start businesses, they want to be everything for everyone. And when you try to be every, everything for everyone, you, you really don't have a, sta- a chance of succeeding uh, because it seems like you stand for nothing. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and so the question I have for you is, what what's your process or what's your recommended process of flow that you would uh, suggest to somebody who is trying to understand who their ideal client is or the demographic is or, you know, trying to build a customer profile? What suggestions would you have for them? So if they don't have clients yet, if they're starting a business, I would I would really truly and honestly, especially if they're solopreneurs, I would tell them to go out and just talk about what they want to do and find like three people to three to five people to do it for free with or like for a really low buy-in. And the reason why is because like it's expensive to start a business and like a website and have it be good. And so many people will go out and they'll like hire the brand developer and they'll like get a logo and they'll create a website and they'll do all this stuff. And then they find out that like actually what they want to teach people to do is not what they thought it was and that they hate what they're teaching people to do and they have to redo the whole thing again. So if they were just to go out and like do some market research on doing the thing for the person, the people first and like getting their feedback they would then see that there's like, even in just three people, that there's like, in those three people, there's this common thread that they can pull on. And that common thread is what they should be doing with their business. No, it's great. And uh, so basically, just to recap there, uh, it's it's really like testing the marketplace before you, you know, invest your money in uh, launching your business to understand, mm-hmm. you know, doing that AB marketing, if you will, and, uh, you know, doing a minimal viable product, if you will, just to see, okay, what kind of feedback I'm getting. And in your case, it seems like, you know, you were, you basically had clients come to you based on your expertise. And that's a good sign to say, okay, this is something that I could kind of leverage. This is something that mm-hmm. I feel that, you know, there is a demand for this particular uh, product, service, skill set, or whatever that might be. And, you know, that's a good way to launch into uh, a business. Uh, the other question mm-hmm. uh that I also want to ask you is about pricing. What, yeah. what's, well, what are your thoughts on pricing? You know, there are, there are people, entrepreneurs who are struggling with trying to find an ideal price point, right? I mean, there is the, uh, you know, they are either uncomfortable trying to charge premium pricing or they are, you know, not comfortable like sticking to, or they, they, they basically go out of their range and uh, go into the premium pricing market because just because somebody told them that, you know, in order for people to buy a product or service, you really got to make them pay for it. And as long as your price point is really high, people think it's quality. And so, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there in the business community as far as identifying the price point, the ideal optimized price point, mm-hmm. uh, be it consulting services or be it, you know, starting out uh, as a business. What What's your take on that? What are your thoughts on uh, pricing? Mm-hmm. I'd say a couple things, and one of them sort of swings back to the last idea, which is, okay, so you, you've decided to start a business, you have clients, you like them, but you're not quite sure, um, you're not quite sure, like, are you, how do you find the ideal client, because you're sort of servicing everyone, and so if I go back to that question, and I go, okay, out of all the clients I've worked with, which ones have I liked working with the most, you're going to find your answer 
like if you can say so you have three clients that you've loved to work with and you've sort of disliked or been meh about the rest of them, look at those three clients and find that ideal thread. And then once you find that ideal thread, you go, okay, if my, if my business focused only on this thread, these are the people that would use it. And here's how much I would feel comfortable charging that for that thing. And I think that so many people get caught up in what am I supposed to charge? In the beginning, it's not about what you're supposed to charge. It's what number can you say confidently out loud? So I'll have my, this is a, there's a difference between men and women on this one. Typically, in my experience, men overcharge thinking that they're like a little too cocky. They need to be a little bit more humble. They need to like just chill out and like look at how much value they're actually giving at this point and be a little more approachable. And women often undercharge and they need a lot of work to say the number out loud without being like, that'll be $170. I like having that hesitation in their voice. And so most of it comes down to pricing for me in the beginning is like, what number can you say out loud and be excited about? No, that's great. And I think, uh, no, that's a perfect way to uh, basically uh, look at it uh, as if you're starting out. And then secondly, if you're already an expanded, you know, if you're a business who is in, which is in a growth status, if you will, yeah. state, mm-hmm. you know, you could look at who's your ideal client, which we have already established how to find that. But then understanding what is the cost of the problem the customer is facing, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you can understand the cost of the problem without your solution in play, that the customer is uh, having to pay every day or every month or every year, whatever that case might be, and then if you can quantify that and then charging your solution a little less than what's costing them, I think that's your uh, price point right there. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah. And sometimes, honestly, it's just like, what number can you say out loud? And I'll often have clients like, They'll want to charge $300 for something. And I'm like, that's a $1,000 product easily. And I know that, but they can't get to that spot right away. And sometimes they'll think it's a $1,000 product, but it's only a $3,000 product or a $300 product. But so I'll always say like, okay, start at one price when you can sell out at that price. So like for me, I, for a long time, I would book three clients and then I would up my price. And every three clients I booked, I would up my price. Now I'm at the spot where you'll you'll then hit like for me, I hit a threshold um, when I was building websites. So I I could have charged ten thousand dollars for a website. I like we started charging five thousand dollars for a website, and then every time we booked three clients, we would up the price by a thousand dollars. But it turned out that anytime we were over the seven thousand dollar mark, I didn't like my clients anymore. So we realized that like for my good quality of life and for the balance and for enjoying my job and like just listening to what makes me happy that like $6,900 was our magic spot. If we charged three to $5,000, I didn't like the clients. If I charged eight to $10,000, I didn't like the clients. That $6,900 spot was, was like the sweet spot for me. And I, I think that people are too scared to play with their pricing. And so you have to just sort of decide that like that's one of the great joys in being an entrepreneur is that you get to make the rules. And there would often be times where I would quote a client because I didn't think I wanted to work with them, but I'd be like, well, it would be worth it to work with you if it was this obscene amount. And I would just quote them that obscene amount. And 50% of the time they would pay the obscene amount 
And I didn't have to resent them because I knew that I charged properly going into it. I think often what happens is that we resent our clients, I, I, especially artists. I work with so many artists or creative entrepreneurs who hate their clients. And it's because they're not charging appropriately for them. And if they could just charge right and hold healthy boundaries, they would love their clients. They would... Um, like be lit up by them, but instead they resent them for charging too little. And that's not your client's fault that that you didn't charge them enough. That's your fault. Oh, well said, well said. And I think uh, it is so, and this brings up another important point that oftentimes we as uh, business leaders or entrepreneurs do not set boundaries, you know, in addition to having their ideal client, I think we need to also have a framework as to what kind of business am I in and what kind of customer would I be engaging in going forward in the sense like, you know, uh, if you have a customer or a client that is oftentimes, uh, you know, a good, not a good fit for what you're offering and what you're, uh, you know, bringing to the world as for, as part of your product or service, it could actually drain you. And, uh, and sometimes it's just easy to let go instead of trying to fix it. And I think uh, that's that's a really uh, very valuable point there. Uh, the other question I have for you, uh, Nick, is uh, what's the best advice you've uh, received as far as your business career is concerned? Anything, any particular uh, advice from your mentors or lessons learned from business that has kind of like served you well? Uh, I would say that Money has taken the place of energy, so to speak. So the idea that like when people pay you, it's because they're they're energetically valuing you and that it doesn't always, I mean, that's not always the case. Like I don't energetically value the person at the grocery store and that's why I bought the orange. But like so often we think like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, sh- I could do that for free. It wouldn't take that much. It's not a big deal. Like, I could, I'll just throw that in because I didn't hold good boundaries on something. And when someone actually pays you, it's like they are energetically valuing you. Right. And so I, I feel like it gives, it gives you the, like those warm fuzzy feelings when someone pays you, like it does when like your mom tucks you in at night, you know, like it's that value, it's that feeling of being seen and heard and, and valued. And the only way that our society does that now is money, whether we like it or not. That's great. I like the way uh, you kind of like uh, look at it, the paradigm or the lens to look at what money is and the energy aspect of it. And and one of the ways that uh, you know I work with my clients and uh, we normally ask them to look at money as a certificate of appreciation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the value that you bring to your customer and they're essentially giving you a certificate of appreciation. It's a silent applause for a job well done, as one of my friends, Peter Thompson, would say. So now this is this is great. Um, we're going to switch gears here, Nick, and moving on to a third section, which is the rapid fire round. And these are All a bunch right. of fun questions uh, that I'm going to ask you. And it's the first response that comes to your mind. We may not be able to get through all of them, but uh, we'll do our best. So, uh, are you ready, Nick? I'm ready. Okay, so the first question I have for you is, who's your favorite music band? Uh, As a good queer person, I have no other choice but to say Tegan and Sarah. All right. What book have you read again and again or re-gifted over the years? Mm -hmm. I'm not like a book reader again, like I'm like a one-and-done person, but uh, Glennon Doyle's Love Warrior. 
Mm, and we'll include that in our show notes. Do you believe in magic? Yes. What is the greatest work of art in your opinion? Mm, like what is the greatest work of art or like what's my greatest work of art that I own? No, what what do you think is uh, out there that you think is the greatest work of art? Mm. Uh, ooh, this is a hard one. I'm an art junkie. I would say anything in that geo right now. Mm. Great. Whose brain would you like to pick? Dax Shepard's. Okay. And then tell me something uh, that is true that almost nobody agrees with you on. It could be like, a, you know, a particular team is like the best football team or whatever. It doesn't matter. So what do you think is that is something that is true that almost nobody agrees with you on? Oh, I don't even know. I would say that... Music is better than books. <laughs> Great. And then final question within the rapid fire round, and that is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? I'll go back to my opening quote of, when given the opportunity to, uh, to choose being right or being kind, choose being kind. I like that. Kindness. That's awesome. And then uh, the final section, and I just have like the last three questions for you. And the first one is, what is your current personal or business passion project that you're working on? And what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year? So the current passion project I have is I'm working with uh, six other parents with um, this Instagram account called Humans of the Year. And it is a group of like, I'm the only dude, but um, different, like one of the people is, the, are, there's this amazing uh, couple called the Foster Moms out of the Boston area who are two um, queer women who have adopted three children out of foster care and are sort of, um, they're transracial, they're a transracial family. They're like white ladies who have adopted three black kids and their trials and tribulations through that. They're one of the curators. Um, It's just like this really like eclectic group of people who want to do good in the world, who are showcasing the people who are doing good on their feed instead of showcasing all the crap that's happening in the world instead. Oh, it's uh, inspiring. Um, and then the best way to reach you is it uh, your uh, website is epicdangerblog.com. Is that the correct uh, link? Yeah, you can just go to epicdanger.com. It just forwards to the blog one. Okay, great. And we'll include all of that in our show notes. Uh, awesome. And then the next question I have for you is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life? I am grateful for my health. I am grateful for the political climate that I live in in my country currently. And I am grateful that I get to do what I love for work. Excellent. So I want to take a couple of uh, minutes here to acknowledge you, Nick. One, one for really like taking the time uh, in your life to noticing your strengths, noticing your gift to the world and really pursuing it because because of that, uh, you know, the world is a better place because of your expertise and what you're helping other people identifying their it factor and their gifts 
And uh, so really, uh, thank you for doing that. And secondly, you know, having the courage, having uh, the, you know, the ability to noticing what is it that's important to you and not only just noticing, but taking action towards it, uh, be it, uh, you know, transitioning to uh, the man uh, you are today. And then also the fact that, uh, you know, trying out new things and being that bold, audacious, courageous uh, person that you are to like really trying out different things so that you can keep making a difference in the community. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. And one final question, Nick, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Because knowledge is power. And there are so many people outside of our direct contact that have so much to offer to us. And why not learn from them? Great. I like that. Thank you again for your time and candid answers, Nick. I really enjoyed and appreciated our conversation. And for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Ras. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.